reading today, I'd ask that you join me in the bold parts at the beginning um, as we read from Psalm 119. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Let us prepare to hear God's word by praying together words from Psalm 119. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise perseveres my life. The arrogant mock me unmercifully, but I do not turn from your law. I remember, Lord, your ancient laws, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. In the night, Lord, I remember your name, that I may keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. Hear the word of God from Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, 
that he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Merciful Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us a receptivity to this, your word. You send rain from heaven, and when it falls, it does not remain void, but it accomplishes its purpose, bringing forth beautiful vegetation and fruit and and blossoms, and we pray that this morning that your word would do wonderful and beautiful things in our lives and that it would cause us to bear the fruit of those who know Jesus and experience union and communion with him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this morning I want to begin with a question. Uh, What do we want for our kids? What do we want for the next generation? We're in an area that I think, you know, I don't think it's really arguable. It's really kid-focused. It's it's kid-centric. You think about all the things that, that there are for kids. You think about the good schools and, and the money that is like poured into the schools and the focus on education. You think about uh, club sports for elementary school kids. Um, you think about uh, private instructors in, in music, uh, private trainers. You think about tutoring. You think about college prep. You think about all of these different things where our lives are organized by this concern and this desire to invest in kids, to invest in the next generation. And there are many great benefits to living here, and I love living here. I'm thankful for many of these things. Our suburban area is, I think, kind of known for this focus on kids and their enrichment, but it's also known as a place where we kind of live these frantic, busy lives where you know, we're constantly shuttling our kids around to different places, and, and we can often feel pulled in all sorts of different directions. And again, often because of good things that we and our neighbors who live in these communities, I, I think we want to invest in the flourishing of our kids. But in this quest for enrichment and the opportunities for kids, an important question should be asked is there an ultimate good? Is there a highest good that is meant to give shape to our lives and the life of our kids? Is there an ultimate good that can help us navigate the chaos of life in a place like this? Is there an ultimate good that could even perhaps help us at times to say no to something that is good because we're after that which is best? I want you to think about um, 
kids in your life. So you might be a parent, you might be a grandparent, you might be a friend of someone who has kids that you're close to. You know, if you call this church home, which maybe not every single one of you is, but you, know, you all showed up to a brand new location today. Um, so I believe many of us, you know, would call Trinity our home church. Every time a child is baptized, we take vows together as a congregation that we would assist in the Christian nurture of the kids here. As you think about kids in your life, what is the ultimate good that you want for them? This passage, Deuteronomy 6, is meant to guide and orient our vision toward this question and its answer. It's a passage that is concerned with the life of faith lived out from generation to generation. If you look at Deuteronomy 6 with me, uh, you'll notice, uh, you probably noticed some of this when we were reading. Chapter 6, verse 2, verse 7, speaks of the importance of the life of faith being taught and lived, knowing God and living with reverence and awe toward Him from one generation to the next. If you look at chapter 6, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, they all speak of God's past promises, of His faithfulness to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the deliverance from Egypt, and how all of this is meant to have an ongoing significance for the people as they come into the land and each generation grows up. And then this very interesting thing in 620, we have this picture of children growing up coming to maturity, having lives that have been shaped by God's commands in this way of life, seeing it lived out in the adults in their life, and they ask, what does this mean? Like, what is the significance of all of this? So I want us to think, what kind of community and what kind of way of life leads to the next generation asking a question like we see in verse 20 of this chapter? I want you to imagine a, a community, imagine a place like us, like Trinity, where kids are growing up and they are saying, I see something here. I see something that is good, that is beautiful. I see a way of life in these grown-ups around me. I see it in mom and dad and in uh, my Sunday school teachers and in my spiritual family, in my community group. I see this way of life that I've been a part of for years now, but I'm, I'm like just starting to dig into it and I'm asking the question, what is the meaning of all this? What is the significance of this? Deuteronomy 6 is about this kind of community and this way of life. And the first thing that I want us to think about is this is a life that is centered on the one true God. So if you look at Deuteronomy 6.4, this is one of the most important confessions of faith in the Old Testament. Basically, every commentary and book that I read on this text this week points to Deuteronomy 6.4 as like the foundational reality from which the rest of chapter 6 flows. It presents this objective reality of who the one true God is, our God. So if you look at Deuteronomy 6.4, the first thing I want you to note and realize is when you see that word LORD in all capital letters, that is not a title, that is God's personal name in Hebrew, Yahweh. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. So what does it mean that Yahweh is one? Well, scholars that know their Hebrew 
way better than I do, uh, will tell you that one of the things that's being emphasized in this statement is Yahweh's singularity. So as one writer put it, Yahweh is not the brand name of a cosmic corporation. He is one God, our God, and Yahweh is his personal name. Let me try to illustrate this. So I'm assuming many of us are probably familiar with uh, those restaurant gift cards that you get, and they can work at like multiple restaurant chains. And so there's the Brinker International Corporation restaurant card, and so it works at Chili's, and it works at Maggiano's, and it works at On the Border. Yahweh is not like that. Yahweh is not a brand name of this larger deity corporation that has all these different manifestations depending on where you might want to go to worship him. You know, like, like the gift card, right, all the restaurants, they're, they're a part of the same group, they're a part of the same corporation, but depending on where you go, the restaurant will be different, the food will be different, the atmosphere will be different. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, this was kind of akin to how they thought about the gods. So, for example, the ancient Near Eastern god Baal had various shrines in all sorts of different locations, and each shrine would emphasize a particular perspective on the deity. And so, you know, you might go to the Chili's version of Baal, or the Maggiano's version of Baal, or the on-the-border version of Baal, and you might prefer what your local shrine has to say about Baal versus what the other shrines might say and emphasize. And how often do we even see today this kind of modern version of this, this way of thinking? Like you, maybe you've said before, or maybe you've heard others say, you know, well, I like to think of God kind of like fill in the blank. Or the thinking that says, you know, there's really many ways to God, many ways to the divine, and and really every religion is valid, and every religion, you know, it, it just has its approach to get to the divine. If spiritual reality is diverse, or if it's not personal, there could conceivably be all sorts of different ways, I guess, that you could perhaps tap into it and connect to it. But if spiritual reality is singular, if Yahweh is the sole creator, the one and only sovereign, then this whole way of thinking about God or spirituality just completely falls apart because Yahweh is a person and Yahweh is one and Yahweh is unified. He, he can't be divided. There, there aren't different versions or manifestations of Yahweh, different perspectives where you could emphasize this over this. The character and being of Yahweh is unified. The other thing that's probably in this idea of the oneness of Yahweh is that Yahweh, um, it's, it's His integrity, meaning that Yahweh is consistent in his own being, that there are not conflicts in his own being where, you know, this part of him conflicts with this part of him. Yahweh is united in his own being. There are no inconsistencies. There are no contradictions. And again, this is very different from the way that the ancient Near Eastern gods might have been because if you know anything, or maybe Jeff might have even said this recently, but in the ancient Near Eastern accounts, oftentimes, their account of how the world was made was made by a divine brawl, 
basically. Like a bunch of gods fought with a bunch of other gods and some of the gods died and then their carcasses were turned into this stuff, which is very interesting and, you know, <laughs> epic. Um, but what we see here is that the foundation of reality is unified in the one true God who is always consistent with himself. So what does this mean? It means that everything that Yahweh says fits with the created order. It means that, that this world that we live in has an order and a unity, that it, that it fits together. It is broken by sin, and, and we experience that and feel that in all sorts of different ways, but there is still an order to this world that was founded in creation and that is sustained by the God who is writing and weaving together his redemptive story in this world. It also means if Yahweh is the one true God, that he has the power to do what he's promised. And so again and again throughout this text, you can see it in so many different ways, but God calls the people to obey and he says something like this, I give you these commands and I call you to live with 100% loyalty to me, living all of your life with reference to me because I want you to experience life, because I want your good, because I want you to live in a way that fits with this world, that fits with reality. Over a hundred years ago, the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink wrote this. Listen to these words. When confession of the one true God weakens and is denied, the unity of the world and of humankind, of religion, morality, and truth can no longer be maintained. Nature and history fall apart in fragments, and every form of superstition and idolatry makes a comeback. Modernity offers abundant proof for this state of affairs, and for that reason, the confession of the oneness of God is of even greater significance today than it was in earlier times. A hundred years ago, right? We, we, we're living in a culture that is allergic to claims of ultimate truth, especially ultimate religious truth claims. And maybe even, you know, what I've said so far today, like, as you're hearing it, like, it, it feels offensive to you. It, it's, it's upsetting to you. But do you see Bavink's point? What he's saying is, if there is no objective reality that is centered and flows from the oneness of God, if ultimate reality is chaotic, or it is random, or we have no access to it, and all we have is our personal feelings about it, then the unity of the world and humanity falls apart. We have no basis for morality, for saying that anything is right or is wrong. And I mean anything. And yet, everyone does this all the time. Like, we make statements about, that is wrong, and this is right. Everyone you know does this. We have no basis for it apart from the oneness of God. We have no basis for truth. And think about, like, how does a society function if we don't have a shared understanding of what is true? History itself becomes random, meaningless events. And nature, whether we're talking about, you know, how we care for this world and receive this world as a gift, or whether, we, or whether we're talking about, like, think about your own body, how we receive and live into our bodies ultimately just becomes things that we can do whatever we want with. And is this not what we see 
in our world. The result of turning away from God to the gods of our own making, of living for ourselves and whatever we want to make meaningful or whatever personal truth we want to believe, it will lead to the erosion and decay of everything that is good. It will lead to us living in a way that is fundamentally at odds with this very world that we live in. It will result in chaos, in pain, in confusion, and in deaths of all kind. It will work itself out in spiritual death as we are disconnected from the God from whom all life flows. It will lead to relational deaths as we can no longer have relationships and shared life with one another. It will lead to the death of meaning, a fragmented, meaningless existence. But the good news of the gospel is that this God who exists, this God who revealed himself to Moses and the people of Israel, Yahweh, the one true God, he came into this world in a person. Jesus is the very embodiment of Yahweh's integrity, the fullness of God dwelling bodily in him. And this is why this makes sense of so many things that we read. So when Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's why Jesus is the only name by which someone can be saved. It's why he's the only Lord and Savior. It's why he's the way and the truth and the life, because Yahweh is a person, and Yahweh is one. And Jesus Christ, Yahweh in the flesh, comes into this world, and he goes to the cross experiencing the judgment that was coming to us to accomplish salvation for us, that through his death and his resurrection, we could be restored to this God. We could be forgiven. We could experience life from the fountain of life and goodness and truth. And if that's true, if it's true that there is this one true God who has been revealing himself throughout history, who came in person in Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation, how ought we to respond? at verse 5 of our text. Shall love the Lord with everything, right? With all that you are, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. We ought to respond by loving this God with all that we have, shaping our whole lives around what He has revealed about Himself and what it means to know Him and follow Him and live for Him in this world, which is for our good. I want us to take the rest of our time, and I want us to think about, in more specific detail, what, what this looks like. So if you've been with us in our study of Deuteronomy, uh, these categories will sound familiar to you. We see in this text, like we've seen elsewhere, this emphasis on hearing, keeping, and doing. So if you look at verses 4 through 9, this is a paragraph that's very concerned with hearing. And in Deuteronomy, uh, this idea of hearing is an idea of deep receptivity, a kind of hearing that takes in what God has said and allows what God has said to reshape and rework us. We are to hear receiving and being shaped by the reality, verse 4, of who God is. 
We are to love Yahweh, taking His words into the depth of our being. We are to pursue a way of life that is centered around the words of Yahweh. We are to teach these things to our children. And we teach them, right, in a way that's not just about external behavior or morality or values, but it's a way that brings our whole heart before the Lord, our desires, our loves, our motives. We are to talk about them in our homes and in our casual conversations. You know, as, as we're driving in the car, as we get up in the morning, as we go to bed at night, and everything in between, we're to bring all of our lives before Yahweh and have His Word instructing us and teaching us and, and guiding us because everything that God says is relevant. Verse 8 and 9, we're to have God's words hit us personally. This, this image of signs on the hands and frontlets between the eyes, but also communally, the doorposts and the gates of the town. And again, because everything that Yahweh has said fits the whole of our lives. And so, just as a point of application, I, I want to ask, how, how are you hearing right now? Are you hearing how is God's Word and His revelation getting into your life? Where is it reworking you? Where is it reshaping you? Where is it perhaps calling you towards something? Or where is it perhaps challenging you? Let's think about keeping and doing. I want to think about these two together. If you look at the paragraph starting at 610, in verse 12, uh, what's translated, take care is this Hebrew word shamar, which can be translated keep or guard or watch over. And the idea is intentional protecting of something. Shamar is repeated again in verse 17, but in this, in this place it's, it's doubled. And this is something that you do in Hebrew if you want to emphasize something. And so it's translated diligently keep, but literally it's something like keeping you shall keep. And this intentional protecting of God's revelation and His commands, this shamaring is meant to lead to doing in Hebrew, asa. And so you see this call to do, asa, what is right and good, verse 18. And then you see it again in verse 24, Yahweh commanded us to do. And then in verse 25, you see these two uh, phrases, you see a phrase that combines these two words, careful to do, which is shamar asa. And what I want you to just think about for a minute is anytime we want to change something in our lives or we want to hold on to something that we ultimately value, we have to shamar asa. So if you want to get healthy, you're like, this is the year. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting healthy. I'm getting back in shape. I'm training for the marathon or, or whatever you're doing. Like, you have to shamar asa. You have to guard. You have to guard certain things, like, in your schedule. Like, you have, to, you have to guard what's coming into your house in terms of, like, what food is being bought and what food is being prepared. And, and then you have to do. You have to asa. You, you have to do the exercises. You have to eat the food. You have to get the rest. You have to shamar asa. Like, in our house, uh, we value trying to sit around the table together and have dinner. And this year especially, with all of the kids' activities and the sports and all the things going on and homework and work and meetings, if we don't shamar asa, we don't sit down and eat together. 
And if you have friends, like say back from like when you were in college, and it is important to you to maintain and keep those relationships, you have to shamar asa. You have to guard those dates in the calendar when people perhaps from all over the country say, hey, we're all getting together this year in South Carolina. You have to guard And then you have to do, you have to book the flight, you have to go, and you have to show up. Because if you don't shamar asa, those relationships will start to fade. To put it a different spin on it, what we shamar asa, what we guard that we might do, is really a window into what we ultimately value. Chapter 6, verse 10, we're told that when Yahweh brings the people into the land, into this place, they're going to come into all this prosperity, right? They're going to come into these awesome cities that they did not build. They're going to come into houses full of stuff that they didn't fill. They're going to come to wells that are ready for them and vineyards that are producing fruit and vegetation for their enjoyment. And it says when you come into all this fullness and you eat and you're satisfied, you have to guard You have to guard and protect what I have revealed to you because it's going to be in that place of prosperity and fullness that there's going to be the temptation just to do life like everyone else, to go after the gods of the nations, to buy into the value system of the people that surround you. And I think there's something really analogous here with what Israel experiences coming into the land and living in a place like this. You know, this may not be true for all of us, but I would imagine many of us, if you're around my age or older, you know, I'm 36, if you think back to when you were in high school, or if you think back to like your early 20s when you were in college, or if you did grad school, um, at least the way I did grad school, our house payment is more money than what our budget was for two people married in grad school, which might say more about our budget in grad school than our house payment. But, I, but the point is, right, like I never dreamed that I would live in a place like this. I was thinking about this this week. Aaron and I used to sometimes buy one Chipotle burrito and split it in half because then we could go out to eat like once a week. And I don't even think about if I want to, I mean, I just go buy Chipotle if I'm hungry. Like there's something about the prosperity that we live in and that we come into and how easy is it in a consumer capitalistic society to build our identities and our purpose and our meaning in life around the things that we can buy and we can do and we can consume and around even the good things that we can provide for our kids. And these are the gods of the suburbs. The thousand different ways that we can build a life and we can build happiness, and we can build security where God is functionally irrelevant. But, so we have to, verse 12, we have to intentionally guard in prosperity, but verse 16, we have to intentionally guard in the midst of hardships and trials. Verse 16, when it references Israel testing Yahweh at Massa, this is this event that happens right after they are delivered uh, at the Red Sea. They're saved from the Egyptians, and they come into the wilderness, and there's not, there's not water, and they're thirsty. It's, it's a, temp, it's a temp, tempting time. It's a hardship. It's a trial. And functionally, what they do to Yahweh is they say, what you've done for us in the past is irrelevant. I want you to meet my needs right now according to my wishes on my timetable. 
I will not trust what you say you are. Prove it. We have to guard in the midst of this kind of situation. We have to guard that we might do. So I want you to think about that. How are you guarding that you might do? Right? Think about life recently. Have, have you made a decision to guard or protect, maybe even by saying no to something that's good so that you might cling to what is best? Or maybe it's like you've carved out time in your schedule because you know that God through his word is calling you to do this thing, but you're never going to actually do that thing if the busyness of life just sweeps you away and controls your schedule and your life. Hearing, keeping, and doing. This is the sort of life that we are called to together. I want you to think about the beautiful life that this text is picturing to us, a way of life that I know many of us in this congregation are already living into and we're already participating in. And I want you to, to think about and realize like the real significance of your labors. We are helping one another to center upon Yahweh, the one true God, and living out the reality of who God is and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ when we gather like this on a Sunday. We are helping one another to hear and to keep and to do when we get together in community groups. Like that, that's what we're doing. We're forming relationships that we can help one another. That's what we're doing in discipleship groups. We want to help one another hear that we might continue to keep and do what God has revealed. You know, many of you serve in nursery you love our kids, you serve in children's church, you, you help out with Sunday school. All of these things, you are participating in this communal project that we are laboring together because Yahweh is our God, the God who has redeemed us, who has loved us, who has revealed himself to us that we might know him, that we might experience him as our ultimate good.